Goedemiddag. En ons middagblok van 12 tot 1, dat wordt tijdens deze Studio Shift de drie dagen ook weer iets heel moois. Studio Shift. Shift. Our heroes. Our heroes. We gaan elke dag van 12 tot 1 praten met één van onze helden, één van de helden van iemand bij In The Pocket, Our Heroes. Ja, dat is niet zomaar een interview, hè. dat is iemand uh, ja, van de pocket die echt een soort van held interviewt. Iemand naar, ze, naar wie ze hier opkijken. Ze hebben morgen Tijn Seffer, een bekende designer, momenteel design director bij Flipboard. Of donderdag Raheem Daya, die bij Pinterest de richting bepaalt. En vandaag is onze held, onze hero, Jared Spool. En de persoon die de eer had, denk ik dan toch wel, op te spreken met Jared Spool, is Thijs van den Broek. Goedemiddag Thijs. Goedemiddag. Hoe gaat het? Een uh, beetje zenuwachtig, maar niet zo zenuwachtig als in de tijd. Dat is niet uh, nodig. Je mag de microfoon nog wel iets dichter bij je mond zetten, maar nog iets dichterbij. Wat is jouw rol bij In The Pocket, Thijs? Uh, ik ben stratege bij In The Pocket. Uh, voornamelijk helpen uh, onze klanten bepalen wat we gaan bouwen en waarom. En zo dat uh, eigenlijk de lastige vragen staan aan onze klanten. <laughs> en daarnaast heel veel met user research bezig. Dus ja. uh, dat ben In The Pocket. Uh, je hebt gesproken met uh, Jared Spool. Vertel me, wie is dat, die man? Uh, Jared Spool, uh, echt, echt een icoon. Uh, hij was al bezig met UX en usability toen ik nog uh, in de wieg lag en zelfs daarvoor. Dus uh, echt uh, al uh, heel lang daarmee bezig. Yeah. En het is ook telkens als ik iets lees uh, over uh, UX, over user research, over usability, dan uh, is Jared Spool heeft daar wel ook iets over geschreven. Dus, uh. Ja, al lang mee bezig. Wat moet ik dan denken? Jaren 80, 70? Waar, waar, waar moet ik het zien? Jaren 70, opkomst okay. van de eerste computers. Ja. Goed, toen al. Dus die heeft ook een enorme impact gehad sowieso. Ja, absoluut. Hij heeft het, eigenlijk het domein mee uh, vorm helpen geven. En uh, eigenlijk helpen bepalen waar het naartoe gaat. En mee ontdekt. Ja, goed. Dat, dat is ook uh, iets wat we uh, Jared Spool als eerste vraag eigenlijk gesteld hebben. Van, uh, oké, okay, uh, je bent er al van het begin bij. Uh, helemaal op het begin. En hoe is het dan vandaag uh, anders en gevormd ten opzichte van die beginjaren uh, 70? Um, uh, back then, nobody knew what they were doing, right? We, I was there when the first usability tests were being run. I was there when we were first trying to understand how to make screens and UIs more usable. I was there when uh, we were creating the first graphical user interfaces. I was there when we were um, uh, creating systems that weren't just used by engineers and programmers but were things like word processors and spreadsheets you know if you think about it a spreadsheet is a programming tool used by people who don't think they know how to program and um and so uh for the first video games i mean we we were there when all this stuff was happening and we had no clue absolutely no clue what to do. So there was a tremendous amount of experimentation. There was a tremendous amount of, of um, uh, trial and error. Uh, we made lots of mistakes. And all of that was, um, was because we just had no idea. Now we have best practices and we have design patterns and we have uh, even dark patterns. We didn't, we never even occurred to us we were going to have dark patterns, right? We, we, there was no time to do things that were 
were bad for people. We, we barely could do things that were good for people. So, um, uh, so, so all these things that we take for granted, you know, just that, that there's a close button in the upper left-hand corner or the upper right-hand corner, depending on which operating system you're on, that, that, you know, you put, uh, uh, you put the action button and then you put a cancel button right next to it, that the buttons look like buttons, right? None of that existed when we were there. When I first started, it was very expensive to have a display that showed graphics. So everything had to be done in 80 characters by 24 characters. That was considered to be a rich world. And <laughs> um, and if you really got fancy, you used character graphics, which were these these this character set that you could swap in for the ASCII character set. So you could get rid of the letters and you could replace the letters with lines. And uh, if you bolded the lines, they looked thicker. And so, uh, uh, so, so, and there were all different shaped lines and, you know, like the K key was just a vertical and the I key was a vertical with a left hand uh, uh, angle and, 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 you know, so you could make boxes and, and smaller boxes and you could have the outside of the box be bold because, or, you know, be thicker because it, it was bold and the inside of the box be thinner because you, you displayed it uh, without bold. And, 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 and so we, all of these things, right. This was how we, we navigated this world of, of design and and there certainly were no applications and there certainly was no information architecture and there certainly was no, no defined understanding of what we would call interaction design today and and user research was very simplistic and um uh, maybe overly so and a product was successful if you had a thousand users would that you also say that at this moment this was was more like an afterthought or like uh, uh, you were just trying to do it and then finding it out and then maybe uh, the result uh, afterwards there there uh, you, you had some impact with it but it was was not like today you need to prove the impact up front you need to get budget for it you need to uh... <laughs> yeah no we I was I was working on I was working on the very first personal computer projects. And um, we knew that people were going to be using the computers who were not the traditional users of computers. Before personal computers, mm -hmm. you had to be a trained professional to use a computer. Uh, the closest thing we had were dedicated word processing stations. So these were these were sort of like personal computers. They were one person computers, usually. Uh, though there were versions of it that that could serve up to eight users off one computer, which was which <laughs> today seems weird, but back then was absolutely normal. And um, uh, and each user uh, um, had to be a trained professional, and you would go to class for two weeks just to learn how to do bold and italics. And um, uh, uh, open a new document and save a document and print a document and change the ribbon in the printer because they were physical 
dot matrix printers or or not even dot may they had a wheel with all the letters on it and the hammer would would hit the 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 printer the the wheel against a, a ribbon that would leave an ink mark on a page so it was pre-laser printer pre-inkjet printer all none of that existed certainly no software fonts right if you wanted different fonts you literally changed the wheel um and so uh the or they were built into the printer um as hardware um so the the uh we were trying to figure out uh, you know how do we make a computer that might have a million users i mean we at one point we had sold 20,000 computers and and we never thought we'd get that far 20,000 personal computers it was the the largest number of computers the company had sold and it had been selling computers for 20 years and we sold 20,000 personal computers and it's like wow that's a that's a order of magnitude larger than than we're used to selling and so we had to reinvent how we sell we had i mean we had to reinvent everything about it mm -hmm. and then uh there came a transition from these uh, personal computers or even uh, workplace computers that you you started using and then they got into your home and a lot more people started using it uh, yeah 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 so so you know after we came out with ours ibm came out with theirs apple came out with the macintosh and everything changed from that point on right and, you know now you had computers in the thousands, then computers in the hundreds of thousands and computers in the millions. And um, uh, you had all sorts of software you could run on these things and the software did all sorts of different things. Um, uh, and then eventually we got connectivity uh, first through modems and then through internet and then through broadband um, and every, everything changed, right? You know, one of the things that changed is, is that the computer itself can do much more than it used to be able to do, right? It used to be if I wanted to put a colored pixel on the screen, I had to write hundreds of lines of code to get that colored pixel to show up on the screen. And um, now programmers don't have to do that. All, all that stuff is pre-built, right? If I want to take... I had to work on, because I worked on word processors, and I had to work on what's, what was known as the word wrap algorithm. And the word wrap algorithm said, if you go into the middle of a paragraph, a multi-line paragraph, and you type the word the, what happens to all the words that follow that? Right? They've got to move to the right, and then they have to, then the, whatever falls off the margin has to go down to the next line, which pushes all the ones there. And how do you do that and keep up with someone's typing? Turned out that was not an easy problem. We, I ended up writing machine code to process word wrap because no high level language was fast enough to do it because the processors were too slow. Now in today's world, if I want to create a word processor, I just get a text widget and I plug the text widget into my HTML page and it just does it. I don't know what the algorithm is that it uses. It just uses, it just does it. 
And actually the text widget doesn't do it. The operating system does it now, right? None of that existed when I was working on this stuff. I had to write the algorithm. I had to program when the characters move to the page. I had to detect that a key had been pressed, figure out what character that key was, figure out what font I should display it in, figure out how to tell the graphics display, not even a graphics processor, these things didn't exist. I had to tell the graphics display which pixels to change in order to display that character in that font. Would you say that at that time, like engineering and UX was almost like one person or very? Oh, yeah, I mean, which, my my company name back in 1988 was user interface engineering. Mm -hmm. Because that's what we did. Mm -hmm. Because in order to get the hardware to do the things we needed it to do, we had to engineer the solutions. It was an, it was absolutely an engineer. I'm a trained software engineer. Mm -hmm. And if you compare it to today, it's like two different uh, professions, two different. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. But that's not unusual. Mm -hmm. Right. That's just maturity. And yep. frankly, for the, for the technical world, it happened really fast. That maturity, you mm -hmm. take a world like, you know, airplane manufacturing and it happened over a much longer piece of time. You take medicine and it happened over hundreds of years, but it, you know, in, mm -hmm. in my time, it happened in just a few decades. Dat is een heel interessante man, Jared Spool. Ik hou ook gewoon van, van hoe, hoe, hoe leuk die is om mee te praten. Ja, je had er uh, echt wel zin in. Uh, dat gaan we dadelijk in een volgend fragment ook nog merken. Ongelooflijk veel zin. Heel erg fijne, fijne mens, die Jared Spool. Ik ken hem nog niet echt, maar ik vind hem nu wel tof. Oh, tof. Voilà. Zometeen gaan we nog veel meer luisteren naar uh, dat gesprek met Jared Spool. Studio Shift. Our Heroes.
bijzonder nummer Operation W Herbs gekozen door onze hero eigenlijk van, van deze middag, Jared Spool. Die, um, laat ik zeggen, Thijs al een behoorlijke geschiedenisles gaf. Fijne geschiedenisles wel. Ik kon er wel les van volgen eigenlijk als hij zo, zo uh, vertelt altijd. Um, maar de geschiedenisles is misschien nog niet helemaal gedaan. Nee, nee, het zit er nog niet op. Uh, <laughs> daarna uh, heb ik hem elke st- stukje vraag gesteld. Uh, Jared heeft het zelf altijd over uh, hoe dat UX eigenlijk uh, differentiërende factor geworden is voor ondernemingen. En hoe dat je je daarin kunt onderscheiden. Uh, en dat is eigenlijk het, uh, de volgende vraag die ik hem ook stelde. Uh, ik had ook wel merken, hij was echt een lolbroek uh, op dat moment. Dus uh, hier, hier is hem volledig op stoom. Dan... Like uh, in one of your talks, uh, you, you say that uh, yeah, like UX, it's like the the last frontier in competitive as a competitive advantage. Like yeah, uh, as a company, I didn't say you that. Can... you're absolutely right. <laughs> I said that. Sometimes I listen to you. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, you would have made a better child than my current children. Uh, uh, yes, I did say that. Was there a question other than that? <laughs> it, it, it was uh, the start of a question, let's say. Uh, no, it's, uh, if you look back at that, uh, uh-huh. it, it became a competitive advantage. But before that, like people were not really uh, having interest in it or it was like slowly growing. Uh, for you, is there like a, a moment like you say, okay, Here, uh, it really became important for executives. It became important for uh, at the top of a company to actually invest in UX and to make sure that the products are uh, at that standard uh, that they started expecting. Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, uh, that is that is very much the case. Uh, uh, the tipping point, the inflection point for, for when that changed was... Um, Well, okay. Mm-hmm. I should back up a little <laughs> to make, for this to make sense, right? There are only two ways that you can sell competitively. Mm-hmm. You can either sell on cost or on quality. Mm-hmm. Those are the those are the only two dimensions for competitive selling. Sure. So, so when we sell on cost, if you and I were competitors, the cost of making the product that we both sold. Whichever mm-hmm. one of us has the lowest cost, not the price, the cost. Whichever one has the lowest cost, in other words, what you would pay to 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 buy, to build and sell the product versus what I would pay to build and sell the product. Whoever has the lowest cost is going to win. Because let's say it's you. You could keep lowering the price, what you charge customers, to the point mm-hmm. where it gets below my cost. If your cost is cheaper than me, then you can actually still make a profit. And for me to match your price, Mm -hmm. I'd have to lose money. But you would make a profit, right? So you could stay forever and Mm -hmm. I would eventually have to give up. Yeah, it's not a sustainable situation for you. Exactly. Mm -hmm. But it is for one company. Mm -hmm. Okay. But for the rest, it is not, right? So, but the problem with, competing on cost is that there's a floor, right? Eventually Mm -hmm. you hit zero Mm -hmm. and you can't go below that unless you're the oil industry for which one day last year, they Mm -hmm. managed to, to, to have the barrel of oil be minus $38 and (laughs) how they pulled that off. And, and so what that meant was for that one day, 
If you wanted to buy oil, the oil company would have to pay you to do it. <laughs> and so uh, um, uh, 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 it was just insane. But for the rest of the world, that uh, um, uh, that 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 can't happen, right? So so it's a race to the bottom. Mm-hmm. So the alternative is quality. When we have better quality product, whichever one of us has a better quality product, there will be some customers who will pay extra mm-hmm. for those for that quality. And so I can charge more than you. And if I if I come up with the right quality that people will pay for, I can charge more than you. Mm-hmm for the same product and people will happily pay me more. This is why luxury cars exist. This is why fancy jets exist, right? People will pay more money for quality, for a higher quality. You just have to figure out what the qualities are. Mm -hmm. And initially in consumer products, quality became a bunch of things like reliability and uh, performance. And mm-hmm. many of these things were were considered quality. So you would pay for a product that was more reliable. You'd pay mm-hmm. for a product that performed better. And you could, you could justify paying that extra money. Yeah, but at some point they reach the ceiling and- you, Well, you at can't... some point what mm-hmm. happens is, is that the cost of quality Mm-hmm. goes down right now it used to be in the 1970s that that uh, uh japanese and german car manufacturers mm-hmm. were just better at building quality cars than the american car manufacturers mm-hmm. and that for american car manufacturers to uh build the same quality as the german and the japanese cars they'd have to raise their prices And, uh, um, uh, uh, but they, but they didn't, they, they couldn't keep the cost down. They didn't know how to, how to make money building quality, Mm -hmm. but over time, the expertise to build quality becomes cheaper. And Mm -hmm. so now they can afford to do it. So now everybody has equally reliable cars, equal performance. And you can't tell the difference, right? The customer can't tell the difference, right? Mm-hmm. Is my phone faster than your phone? Do we care? Mm-hmm. Right? So at some point, those qualities are no longer the things that differentiate the product. Mm-hmm. But user experience is almost infinitely differentiable, Right. Mm-hmm. I can build a different user experience into my product than you build into your product. And if I pick the right things, people will choose my experience over your experience. Mm-hmm. And it will still cost you a lot of money to try and match my experience. And while you're doing that, I'm just going to figure out how to build an even better experience to stay out of you. Mm-hmm. So maybe so a question already. Experience, experience becomes the last frontier of competition Mm -hmm. because reliability, performance, maintainability, 
safety, all these things even out. Het is heel interessant van Jared Spool wat hij allemaal vertelt. Dus hey, al, al die vlakken die we dan zien als kwaliteit of toewijzen als een bepaalde kwaliteit, inderdaad, dat vlakt af, want het wordt allemaal gelijk. En dan is UX toch nog het, het enige om eigenlijk echt te differentiëren en het verschil te maken. Ja, dat is, dat is wat hij hier uh, zegt. Hè. Maar ik wou daar toch een vraag stellen. Dus dat was eigenlijk <lacht> mijn, mijn volgende vraag aan hem. Is van, ja, gaan we dan ook niet naar een plafond toe geraken uh, op vlak van UX? Gaan we daar ook niet allemaal op eenzelfde niveau gaan geraken? No, there's no ceiling in UX, but it, it, it's the scope of the problem changes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way to think about it is um, like a camera zooming in and zooming out. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we're focused on the screens, you know, What are the what's the language on the screens? Where are the fields? How does someone interact with a screen? You know, let's take a form where you're you're filling out your address, mm-hmm. right? The patterns for address are fairly well understood at this point. They weren't always. For example, when we were building software in the US, we had no idea how European addresses worked. Mm-hmm. We had no idea how Japanese addresses work. But now we know these things and we can mm-hmm. We can localize a product and have it show up so that so that you get a postal code that's Europe friendly versus a postal code that's US friendly. And you know, Japanese postal codes are just crazy. And so uh um uh so we we understand all that now. So we understand that level of interaction. But mm-hmm. that form by itself doesn't just as a piece of a bigger thing. So if mm-hmm. we zoom the camera out, we can now see that that address form is part of a checkout flow. Mm-hmm. And we now know patterns for the checkout flow, but the nature of the patterns for a checkout flow are very different than the nature of patterns for an address form. Yep. And if we zoom the camera out again, we see that that, that checkout is part of a bigger experience where we've built a, uh, uh, an app that somebody uses to uh, say, um, uh, uh, what would a good app be? Uh, uh, let's say um, uh, be a, a delivery service for, <laughs> for, for uh, groceries. And so, When I'm thinking about a delivery service for groceries, it's not the one-time shopping experience that I care about. Mm-hmm. It's the weekly ordering of groceries that now mm-hmm. I care about. And you know, how often do I suggest that maybe you should get dishwasher soap? And you don't need it every week, but mm-hmm. if I know something about the cadence of of how well you use you've ordered dishwasher soap in the past, I can say, hey do you need dishwasher soap just as you're running out and have that ready for you? So now the patterns of, of thinking about the problem in terms of helping people plan their grocery shopping uh, (laughs) is a different level of problems than a checkout, which is a different level of problems than taking in their address. Mm -hmm. And And these these lower levels are like understood and we know more or less how to give some of them are we definitely know how to do addresses 
-hmm. But for example, we're still learning how to ask people about their gender. Mm -hmm. Because that's not as simple as it used to be. Yeah, it it became a more complex uh, uh, problem over time. Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. And it's not like people have changed. People haven't changed. But the way we talk about gender has changed. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and, you know, um, so I have a field in my address form that says country. Mm-hmm. Right? What do I do with um, Hong Kong? Is Hong Kong a separate country? What do I do with Taiwan? That's even a better example. Is Taiwan a separate country or is Taiwan part of China? For some it is, for some it's not. Exactly. So what are the rules around that? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And how do you signal to the user which set of rules you're using? Mm -hmm. And and the same applies to your uh, grocery uh, uh ordering where you uh-huh. say like some users they want like being inspired with new products every week and see new things where other users they just want their routine weekly uh, groceries delivered right so what if i live on the border of mm-hmm. belgium and the netherlands mm-hmm. and the grocery store that i'm shopping for is actually on the other side of the border Mm-hmm. And I want deliveries, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's a five-minute drive to that grocery store, but I'm crossing country borders. How does the address form work? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and should it even be a problem? Should it be a problem? Should we care? Are there, mm-hmm. you know, in the EU there there are not tariffs per se, but what if it's Northern Ireland? and Mm -hmm. ireland Mm -hmm. right where there might be because of brexit there might be tariffs because one's in the uk and one's not Mm -hmm. one's in europe and so now how does that work do you have some tips on teams to uh, make this transition from like really uh, reacting to uh, like the things you already do like type of reactive research to more like explorative and directive research Yeah, so I I often say that if we built, um, uh, if we built bridges the way that we build applications and uh, software, um, Mm -hmm. we would just build the bridge and then we'd send a car over it and see if the car plummets into the depths below. You know, does it does it fall off the bridge and 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 or crash through it? And then mm-hmm. and then we'd say, oh, maybe we need to take change the bridge and and then try another car and mm-hmm. keep trying cars until they successfully cross the bridge. And that's not how people build bridges. Mm-hmm. And we need a different way of uh, building bridges. Right. We need a different way of building applications. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, uh, and we need to be doing some research because we need to understand what those those use cases are. We need to understand how people will use it. 
particularly mm-hmm. if quality is the way we're going to compete. Mm-hmm. Right. If price is the way we're going to compete, then we just have to build something that works and is cheap. We don't mm-hmm. want to make any more investment than that. Mm-hmm. And you do that in commodity markets. But software is rarely a commodity market. So when we're building with software, um, there's something unique about it. And whatever it is that's unique about it, that's what we need to focus on. Does that make sense? Uh, yes. And uh, But how do you find out uh, how you can be unique as a company? You have to talk to your users. Mm-hmm. Users are what make you unique. If I'm building something that is for teachers, are we going to assume that all teachers are the same? Or are we going to assume that, that um, teachers who teach science are different than teachers who teach um, language? Or maybe it's that high school teachers are different than grade school teachers or the university professors are different than high school teachers mm-hmm. or that teachers who teach physical sports are different than teachers who teach classroom work. Right. We need to understand what it is that, 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 uh, makes the, the, the teachers different. We need to understand what the variations are that we're going to account for. Are all those teachers, teachers we're going to try and serve, or are we only going to serve a subset of them? Mm-hmm. You know, maybe we're only building tools for teachers who teach music because it's a musical tool of some sort. Mm-hmm. Let's do learn how to read sheet music, for example. So it doesn't have to work like other software but it has to work. And Mm -hmm. there are things that are similar between all teachers. Like uh, they have to be able to track a student's progress. They have to figure out if the student's getting stuck. They -hmm. have to be able to give grades. They Mm -hmm. have to be able to um, uh, produce some sort of examination or, or assessment to say that the student has learned and achieved the goals of the course. Mm-hmm. Right. So we need to go figure out what all those things look like. Mm-hmm. And you probably go need to see a teacher first before you can actually start. Uh, well, I can go build this. something for music teachers, but I guarantee you that it won't be anything mm-hmm. music teachers really need until I start talking to music teachers. Because mm-hmm. what do I know about music teachers? Even if I've taught music, do I teach music the same way that other teachers teach music? What do they all have in common? Where do they vary? Heel interessant wat James Poel allemaal vertelt. Um, maar aan het begin van dit stuk was zijn antwoord ook heel duidelijk. Hè? Want nee, er is geen plafond aan, aan UX. Dat was heel duidelijk. Nee, je kan daar nog uh, op blijven differentiëren en uh, blijven naar verschillende doelgroepen zoeken. Uh, ook je technologie blijft veranderen. Uh, je maatschappij verandert ook. Uh, zoals ja. bijvoorbeeld uh, het uh, genderform waar dat je het over heeft. Uh, wat dat uh, tien jaar geleden opgelost was, of dachten we toch, en wat vandaag terug opnieuw een probleem is. Dus daar moeten we opnieuw over nadenken als UX'ers van wat wilt dat nu zeggen. 
Ja, ja. En het nummer dat, dat jij nu hebt gekozen, um, dat we gaan spelen, heeft er ook mee, wel een beetje mee te maken. Het is een, een leuke zinspeling erop. Ja, ik heb uh, van Kenji Minok uh, naam, uh, familienaam gekozen. Uh, gewoon als uh, lolleken uh, ertussendoor. Een bijzonder gek project ook wel, maar wel een goed project, Kenji Minok. En zo, wat is het? 20 voor 1 op de middag? Mag wel. Naam, familienaam, goeiemiddag. Mooie naam, familienaam. Bram van de Wallen. 
Benjamin ook naam, familienaam. We zitten uh, kwart voor één in Our Heroes. Het gesprek met een van de helden van iemand bij In The Pocket. Dat is vandaag Jared Spool, uh, waar jij thuis mee gebabbeld hebt. En uh, het is nog een laatste blokje waarin we dan logischerwijs ook een beetje vooruitkijken naar de toekomst. Ja, ja we hebben hem eerst heel die geschiedenis gehad. <laughs> en uh, met al zijn ervaring uh, wordt ja. het voor hem natuurlijk ook veel gemakkelijker om te kijken van oké, okay, waar gaat het naartoe? Hoe zijn die veranderen? Ik kan dat van een veel hoger niveau bekijken dan dat de meeste van ons dat be- uh, kunnen. Dus ik heb hem ook die vraag gesteld van oké, okay, hoe zie je de toekomst? Enerzijds technologie, alles wat er verandert, maar anderzijds ook hoe dat je job als UX-professional uh, gaat veranderen. For looking at uh, UX, uh, it's very important at this moment, uh, but uh, it is a domain that changed a lot uh, in the past uh, decades, like, like we talked uh, about at the beginning. Uh, how do you see it changing uh, in the next 10 years? Or uh, are there things that you see uh, that uh, will become different? Well, I'm not a futurist. I'm a, mm-hmm. you know, if anything, I'm a, I'm a historian. I look at what, what's happened in the past and I talk about that. Um, so I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I don't sort of spend a lot of time thinking about what new technologies are going to be here or um, uh, how, how will interactions change? But mm-hmm. I think if we look at history, we can see certain trends um, and and look at what's happening currently. So if we think of it as most of the next 10 years, so most of the things that we have today existed 10 years ago, mm-hmm. but they weren't evenly distributed. The, mm-hmm. the, the people who had access to those things were very small. And the, the big difference between 10 years ago and now is that more people have access to those things. More people have processors that are fast enough to do these sort of things. Um, so, for example, uh, take, uh, take voice applications. Mm-hmm. What Siri and the Echo and Google Home can do today, we could do that 10 years ago but it was too expensive to implement on a mass scale. Mm-hmm. So now we have it on a mass scale. So we can look at things that um, we have today that are very expensive and we can start to project which of those things will be here 10 years from now. Mm-hmm. And, and um, uh, I think on one level from a technology level, uh, Uh, I think we're going to see more um, augmented reality mm-hmm. than we do now. Uh, we see a bunch of it now. I mean, uh, it's not sexy augmented reality, but the fact that I can be in a place and open the map app in my phone mm-hmm. and the map and the phone knows what's ahead of me, what's behind me, uh, and in some cases can show me pictures of what's ahead of me, what's behind me. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, That um, uh, that process of uh, of of 
know of of doing that. That's augmented reality, right? Because I now have a map and I can click on um, uh, a building on my map and get the phone number for that building and call them and mm -hmm. be standing in front of the building and talking to somebody inside the building to ask them to let me in. Uh, mm -hmm. I couldn't do that before. So that's augmented reality, right? In its simplest form. But now we're gonna mm -hmm. get more of that and it's gonna be fancier mm -hmm. augmented reality. I'm gonna be able to, to, to hold up my phone and see all sorts of details about the building without having to press something, right? Uh, and I think we'll see that. I think we'll see more uh, voice applications that are that are even more useful than the ones we have. Um, I think we'll see um, uh, simple drone usage that's more that's more useful than what we have today. Mm -hmm. So from a technology standpoint, there's a bunch of things. I think we'll see more machine learning. I think we'll see more um, uh, uh, built into things. I, I think we'll see uh, uh, mm -hmm. higher resolution displays. Um, so from a technology standpoint, there's that. Mm -hmm. But then from a... Um, uh, uh, a UX standpoint, there's other things that are happening right now that I think we're going to have to learn how to do. I think we're going to have to learn how to be more equitable, right? How do we, how do we have a conversation about uh, harm that might be, that we might be doing in our design? Mm -hmm. You know, if we do a good job, we, you know, I talked about an outcome. If we do a good job on something, we, um, uh, uh, how do we improve people's lives? Mm -hmm. We also have to start asking the question, if we do a good job on something, how do we harm people? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, uh, the home delivery business, at least in the United States has created this whole new class of jobs where people are delivering stuff but they don't have the protection of workers that mm -hmm. real employees have because there are these momentary contract workers. We created this capability to hand somebody a contract for five minutes and pay them for that five minutes or hand somebody a contract for 15 minutes and pay them for that 15 minutes while they deliver a restaurant meal to somebody's house. Mm -hmm. But those contract workers don't get health insurance, they don't get um, uh, uh, safety uh, protections. Uh, they, they don't get unemployment protections. Mm -hmm. And this is again, the zoom level playing though, that we're now yes, looking is. at the absolutely right. society level. Yes, uh, yes, you, you, you hit it on the head, right? So I think we're gonna start zooming out again mm -hmm. and now focusing on the interactions in society with the designs we make. Mm -hmm. I think that that's an interesting one. And the other interesting one is that uh, I believe that in the UX of, for example, augmented reality or the UX of machine learning, we're still at these early days, like understanding what the basic interactions are. So we're playing at this very uh, sure. narrow zoom level in these new technologies and the very broad zoom level in the products and services we build.
You're absolutely right. I think specialization, I, I think that we're going to see UX people who specialize in healthcare mm -hmm. and UX people who specialize in climate sustainability and UX mm -hmm. people who specialize in security and, uh, uh, and that those UX people are going to know how to do UX, but they're also going to know way more about those fields than mm -hmm. other people do and what works and what doesn't work. I think the mm -hmm. level of specialization is going to grow. Okay. Very interesting uh, point of view, Jared. Uh, well, thank I you. Think, <laughs> uh, thanks a lot for uh, your time for this interview. Uh, it was a very uh, eye-opening moment for me. And uh, uh Let's see you soon in one of your uh, intensives uh, with Center Center. That sounds great. I look forward to it. Uh, I'm uh, good luck with Shift, and uh, uh, thank you so much for encouraging my behavior. <laughs> heel erg vriendelijke mens die <laughs> ook heel blij was duidelijk om met jou te praten hè, om, om zijn uh, behavior wat aan te moedigen. <laughs> ja, het was een uh, zeer aangenaam gesprek met Jared. Uh, ja. Ik wil nog even terug uh, wat dat hier ja. op het laatste gezegd heeft. Het uh, is eigenlijk wel interessant om te zien is dat je als, als uh, UX'er wel moet weten op welk Zoom-level je aan het werken bent. Uh, ben je terug in dat, op dat heel uh, specifieke kleine Zoom-level aan het kijken naar hoe zitten nu die basisinteracties uh, met een machine learning model eruit? Of hoe ga je uh, in augmented reality uh, die, die knoppen en ja, in, in zo'n 3D-wereld rond je, hoe, hoe werkt dat dan daar? Dat kennen we vandaag nog niet, dus daar zijn we nog aan het uitzoeken. Dus dat is een stuk waar je op kan focussen. Uh, anderzijds ook veel breder gaan nadenken, oké, okay, was nu de impact uh, globaal op de maatschappij die we hebben uh, met de dingen die we aan het doen zijn. Ja, ja. echt heel interessant allemaal. Uh, Thijs van der Broek, dankjewel om uh, het gesprek te doen met, met, met Jared. Vond je zelf ook wel fijn natuurlijk, maar merci om er deze middag zo volledig over te komen vertellen. Graag gedaan. Studio Shift.